Hello and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I am here with a wonderful group of actors as we work our way through Act 5 of Richard II. So we just, we just did the deposition scene, the fun act scene of 4-1, <laughs> where Richard formally gave up his crown. And so now the rest of the play is about the fallout from this, this uh, culminating action. So let's see the effect it has on Richard's marriage. <laughs> this way the king will come. This is the way to Julius Caesar's ill-erected tower, to whose flint bosom my condemned lord is doomed a prisoner by proud Bolingbroke. Here, let us rest, if this rebellious earth have any resting for her true king's queen. But soft, but see, or rather do not see, my fair rose wither. Yet look up, behold that you in pity may dissolve to do and wash him fresh again with true love tears. Of thou the model where old Troy did stand, thou map of honor, thou King Richard's tomb and not King Richard, thou most beauteous inn, why should hard-favored grief be lodged in thee when triumph has become an alehouse guest? Join not with grief, fair woman, do not so, to make my end too sudden. Learn, good soul, to think our former state a happy dream, from which awaked the truth of what we are shows us but this. I am sworn brother, sweet, to grim necessity, and he and I will keep a league till death. Hie thee to France, and cloister thee in some religious house. Our holy lives must win a new world's crown, which our profane hours here have thrown down. What, is my Richard both in shape and mind transformed and weakened? Hath Bolingbroke deposed thine intellect? Hath he been in thy heart? The lion dying thrusteth forth his paw and wounds the earth, if nothing else with rage to be overpowered. And wilt thou, pupil-like, take the correction, mildly kiss the rod, and fawn on rage with base humility, which art a lion and the king of beasts? A king of beasts, indeed, if aught but beasts, I have been still a happy king of men. Good sometime queen, prepare thee hence for France. Think I am dead and that even here thou takest as from my deathbed thy last living leave. In winter's tedious nights sit by the fire with good old folks, and let them tell the tales of woeful ages long ago betide. And ere thou bid good night to quite, to quite their griefs, tell thou the lamentable tale of me, and send the hearers weeping to their beds. For why the senseless brands will sympathize, the heavy accent of thy moving tongue, and in compassion weep the fire out. And some will mourn in ashes, some coal black, for the deposing of a rightful king. Wow. Extraordinary. Um, what are our, our thoughts? How is, how is this? I, I mean, I love that this is like their only real scene together in the play. But somehow from the beginning, we're so invested in this relationship from the beginning of the scene. What, what, what are your thoughts? I think in the deposition, he was, you know, we were talking about it as a tennis match. Mm. You know, he, was, he was winning every round. The, the level of rhetoric in this is just as high, if not higher, but it, it seems truly sad. Yeah. He's Less zingy. <laughs> <laughs> Less zingy points, like Not these points. Fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wonder, 
just like going on like less zingy, <laughs> um, <laughs> I just realized that this is like the first time in a while we've seen Richard talk to someone who is like truly like with him. Mm. You know, like mm-hmm. for the past, since he came back from Ireland, he's just been surrounded by traitors and everything. He's had to have a <laughs> shield up. And so I'm like wondering if this is like a time where he just kind of breaks down because he sees kind of like the last person who supposedly cares for him. Mm-hmm. So I feel like if I were to play the queen, I would just like have to really play the fact that like, even if maybe they're like not romantically inclined to each other, they're like best friends. Because that's the only yeah. way anything makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Like Richard shows really no heartfelt anything to anyone but her. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's a great point. There's the, there's a, it's a really complicated relationship too, because it, it, it seems like this is definitely some of the most personal moments that we, that we see for Richard coming. Well, they all come in act five. Like the other scene we're going to see him in, in the prison is also a very personal scene. And it's like, he's, I don't know. He doesn't, his, it seems, this seems much less performative to me than act four. Mm-hmm. There's something like that was the match. And this is the, <laughs> this is the like processing it, <laughs> except you're mm-hmm. on your way to prison. So <laughs> there's not a lot of, you know, processing that, that gets to happen. I, I, I did. I love this, this bit about Richard being swarm, bro- swarm brother to grim necessity Because to me, it's just, it like echoes what Gaunt said in act one when he was trying to convince Bolingbroke that um, there's no virtue like necessity, right? There's no virtue like necessity. Just just think that you banished the king and then you went away. And there's all this this wonderful sort of Freddy foreshadow going on there. But I think in in this sense, it's like, no, what necessity truly is, is like what Richard's talking about. It's sort of the virtue is that it's inevitable and, and you, you, you have to adhere to it because you don't really have another choice. Um, and, and I love how there's, there's interesting kind of gender reversals in, in, in this play a lot in terms of, of gendered responses. And I think it's really interesting that Isabel's, Queen Isabel's sort of instinct is, no, you got to fight this. Like, you need to fight this. You need to wound the earth. You need to scratch the walls. You need to, you know, and, and we're going to hear about Richard thinking about scratching the walls with his nails in, in Act 5, which we're in right now, of course, <laughs> in a few scenes. Um, but so there's, there's an interesting, um, he's sort of resigned in this interesting way. He's still commenting sort of bitterly about it, but there's a resignation to the, the situation. Um, that seems to me to be different than what we've seen before. I feel like this happens, I mean, I'm thinking of like Beatrice and Benedict right now. I'm thinking of like those situations in which the man is sort of resigned to let things play out the way they're going to play out. And the woman is like, if I were a man and had like any power whatsoever, I would fucking fight. Like, why can't, you know, like, and I, I like that. Eat I his heart. Yeah, I would eat fast. his heart in the marketplace. Like, women are always stepping up as soon as things get dire. I feel like kind of like Lady Macbeth with the uh... yeah, yeah, absolutely, totally. And I just love seeing the queen. And also, it's the I think this is I think this is the first scene we see 
Richard care about another person and like what happens to them. Uh, And we haven't quite gotten there yet in this, in this read through, but you know, like be protective of another person and Mm. their fate and like, you know, their, yeah, which is interesting. So I think their relationship is so important to the play, even though we Mm -hmm. only really get them in this one scene. Yeah. It's like yet another, it's like the process of taking away all of these masks that he's Mm. built up that you see him fully, you know, adorned at the beginning and like taking a layer off every scene. And here is sort of where we get him at the most vulnerable we've seen him, I think. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, I'm very curious. I would love to sort of pick apart one of her opening images, this bit about the, you are the model where old Troy did stand. You're a map of honor. Oh my God, you're a tomb. You're not King Richard. It's fascinating. Like I've never fully understood the, the Troy, the model of old Troy, um, which was of course the ancient city also sometimes called Ilium, but it's, it, and, and model here meaning sort of the, the ground plan or the layout and a map in the next line sort of meaning an epitome or an incarnation of honor. But it's just, it's interesting. I, I wonder why Troy, why this ancient city? Is it because Richard's being battered <laughs> by these outside forces? Is it because he is in fact Helen of Troy as we've uh, previously discussed? Like, I'm just, it's an interesting reference and I still don't really fully understand like why she uses that particular image. But I, I do, I love this, this bit at the end about the, um, why should grief be lodged in you um, as in it's like taking up residence in your body <laughs> when triumph has become so common and so sort of everyday and quotidian. But does anyone have any, any thoughts about like why she says you are the, you know, the, the layout of <laughs> the ancient glorious city? <laughs> well, I mean, you go, Mike. Well, I, I just had a qu- as far as like how they, did they believe Troy actually once existed or did they and it was the lost fallen city or was it a myth to them at this point that's a wonderful question i think there is definitely the tendency when when characters in shakespeare are um in situations of distress it's like the only way that they can make sense is to put themselves into roman and greek mythology so that Mm -hmm. that could be exactly what she's doing you're like you're like as as big and magnificent as the ancient city of troy that of course was destroyed over 10 years so there is there is definitely i think they took it as a sort of pseudo history <laughs> that it sure. actually that it actually happened but yeah i, I like that that the there is she sort of puts him in the category of a of, a, of mythology naz did you have anything anything else sort of um, yeah, it's like a kind of half-baked thought, but um, <laughs> but maybe because like she's comparing, like I was thinking like the divine right and how mm. like Greek and Roman mythology, that's like the foundation of like what a lot of people think is like the foundation of like our culture, Yeah, which is debatable, but you know, draw <laughs> <laughs> a lot from is Greek and Roman mythology and just like their history and everything. So like 
he's like a king by his like divine right so he is the ground plan for just like the kingdom and for england so maybe she's mm. comparing from there oh that's very nice yeah i like that that there's and there's something representative about his the king is the country right this is why the king says we because the king is no longer one person the king is the entire country which is so like linguistically interesting to me <laughs> that but I, I i like that idea that sort of richard has inherited the the power that that can trace its roots all the way back to the foundations of like western mythology you know that's that's fascinating i really like that and also here we have the lion um the lion imagery too i love that that image of the lion like scratching the earth and being like fuck you earth even though i'm dying i'm gonna wound you and I, I don't recall if, I mean, so she calls Richard a lion and a king of beasts or king of the beasts. And then I love how he sort of takes that. He's like, yeah, that's true. I am a king of these beasts. They're not even people anymore. <laughs> like yeah. The people who they, they've lost their humanity somehow. And, and Richard, it's interesting. So the first, so Richard the first, right, in the line of English kings was Richard the Lionhearted because he, he killed a lion and he wore his pelt. I was just about to ask that. I was like, which one is yeah. the Lionheart one? Not yeah. this one. So but... even though that was <laughs> hundreds of years before, there was not another Richard until Richard II. So there is an interesting, I, I think, connection there between the first Richard and Richard II as well, in association with the, the heart of the lion, right? Cour de Lyon. I think you really see... I just realized this is really interesting, like coming right after the deposition scene where you do still get that performative Richard mm -hmm. a bit, mm -hmm. uh, that this, I mean, the first thing the queen said, like when he comes in, she's like, you know, see my fair rose wither. And like a page before he's just been looking in the mirror and being like, you can't even tell, yeah. like, I'm still so handsome. And like, you can't even tell <laughs> how much shit I've been through. And yeah. so I feel like between the end of that scene and the beginning of this one, you're actually seeing like what a toll that has taken. That's wonderful. Even though right before he's like, you know, I'm still perfect and amazing. Yeah. It's like now that he's sort of in private with this person who actually knows him, he, you, it's the first time you're like, oh, wow, he's changed. Like yeah. he's really been beaten up. And like you Sorrows can see the effect of that. Blows. <laughs> yeah. Have, have, have had their effect. Absolutely. You can see it, which he was just talking about how you couldn't see it. So yeah. yeah that's <laughs> he's really let his guard down. Yeah. He's really <laughs> let his guard down. <laughs> Absolutely. And I love this, this bit about sit by the fire with good old folks and let them, t you know, and I just, it's such a wonderful phrase, the lamentable tale of me, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a kind of classic Richard thing to say, you know, just like the woeful, beautiful tale <laughs> of me, you know, it's just like so still so like inward looking but sort of showy and then I, I really like this word quiet because it sounds like quiet their griefs but I think that it it is a, a shortening of the word requite yeah right so like to give them thanks for all of their 
their tales, the lamentable tale of me. Um, <laughs> I, I really hope that somebody writes a, a memoir at some point in their life and just calls it the lamentable tale of me. <laughs> I love that Richard also says like, my tale is so sad that the firebrands will start crying and will put the fire out. Like, <laughs> that's an amazing image. Like, I'm so sad that inanimate objects will start crying and stop doing their function as... And he hasn't even been imprisoned yet. I know. Like, ooh, <laughs> we got a little ways to go. It hasn't even been murdered yet, either. It hasn't even been murdered <laughs> yet. Even the more, the, the right? more sad moment. <laughs> Amazing. Well, so they have this wonderful moment alone, and I'm assuming that Richard has a... There's a guard that's accompanying him, and our our lovely lady from from the garden scene is, I think, with with the queen. But then in comes Northumberland, who's just a little bit of a kind of bureaucrat. I think he's just like we've got papers that need to be filed, and like <laughs> we need to be more efficient in uh, in government. So in comes Northumberland and says. My lord, the mind of Bolingbroke is changed. You must have it, not unto the tower. And madam, there is order tained for you. With all swift speed, you must await to... Just a little note about where this is. So I don't know exactly. I think they're in London right now. You know, and so Richard is headed to the Tower of London, which was Julius Caesar's ill-erected tower, right? That's the sort of... It's a very ancient uh, castle. Pomfret is short for Pontefract, which is in West Yorkshire, which was later a very a big stronghold for the Lancaster family for for uh, Bolingbroke. But so it's interesting to me that Richard, that King Henry now, has changed his mind and he doesn't want Richard in the Tower of London. He wants him way, 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 way north and like far away from the center of government. And I, we never really under, are told sort of why that is, but also important to note that Bolingbroke's allies, the most important, are coming from the north of England, right? So that they're going to a place that, Richard is going to a place that is very much supporting his reign. So maybe there's something to that. One question on it, Ariana, because mm -hmm. it was, um, I, had to look, I had to look it up too. The, um, <laughs> according to the, the, what I found online, he was in the tower for uh, a chunk of time historically, yeah. and then moved. Yeah. Um, but it was, uh, but here obviously he hasn't even made it to the tower yet. So it's just yeah. kind of interesting that that he changed that. I don't know what mm. the. It was was Pomfret was it uh, an easier prison? I guess because you grew up with the Tower of London being so god awful. Mm. Yeah, but I think what's interesting about the Tower of London too was that it was actually a castle and there were like nice places to live in it. So it was both a prison and also a place where oh. people would live. Like I, I, yeah. I think of it as like a white collar prison. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was just about to... Like there's, like, some, there's some really nice tapestries. I've got a great art collection. <laughs> You're still like not allowed to get out, but you know, yeah. you, you it's, have it's a pretty nice It's not a poor people's yeah. prison. Yes. No. no, definitely not. It's like, like being under house arrest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, so but I mansion think... house arrest too. Mm -hmm. Like really nice. House arrest. Very nice castle, castle arrest. house arrest. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, it's not to say that there weren't horrific 
things and torture that happened at the tower, but also that there were actually like very nice places in the tower to stay. Gotcha. Um, so I think in most of these these castles, they, they're not designed exclusively as as places of imprisonment. There's also some some residents. I don't know the history of the of the of Pomfret, but it's obviously a a northern stronghold. And Richard would, I guess, potentially be further away from the seat of power, which is London, the seat of government. Gotcha. Which, you know, London's very unique um, in, in many ways, but it's both the political center of power in the UK and also the commercial center of power. And that doesn't happen very often in countries, um, like certainly not in the US, you know, DC and New York and LA and all also, we're just a much bigger country. Um, but anyway, so here we have a, a new, and, and the queen is sort of being banished. I mean, she's being sent back to her homeland, which is France, which is interesting. I'm not quite sure why that is. Hmm. Um, and now comes one of my, my favorite. If you ever want to insult someone, call them a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> so, here we have Richard's response to Northumberland. Northumberland, thou ladder, wherewith all the mounting Bolingbroke ascends my throne. The time shall not be many hours of age, more than it is, ere foul sin, gathering head, shall break into corruption. Thou shalt think, though he divide the realm and give thee half, it is too little, helping him to all. He shall think that thou, which knowest the way to plant unrightful kings, wilt know again, being ne'er so little urged another way to pluck him headlong from the usurped throne. The love of wicked men converts to fear, that fear to hate, and hate turns one or both to worthy danger and deserved death. So here is the prophecy of exactly what is going to happen in mm -hmm. Henry IV, part one and two, right? It's kind of amazing. I did um, not realize this speech existed, yeah. <laughs> or I forgot that it did, but wow. It's Just amazing. Lay it all out. Lay out the next few plays, why don't you? Absolutely. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? The people who are, it's, it kind of goes back, again, we're circling back to Acts 1 and 2. This is what Gaunt said when he was about to die. He basically prophesied you are going to rip the realm apart. And now Richard, who is also at the point of death, is saying to Northumberland, you're going to rip the land apart, which is exactly what happens. Um, you know, something I'm, I'm very interested in, in terms of a sort of class analysis of this history plays is like, whenever we can show that these family squabbles had a huge effect on the entire realm, like who is being drafted in these wars? Like who are the people who are being pushed into service? It's obviously the people in the working class. I mean, you know, there's a lot in Henry the Fourth Part One about people being pressed into service and they just like give them a weapon and then they're like, okay, go fight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. what? Like, how is that a way to, to you know, anyway. But I, I love that it's yeah. this planting of the seed because it is Absolutely. one of those things where you're like, if he didn't say this, maybe non, maybe that all wouldn't have happened. Like it's very, <laughs> very, very <matrix>. like conquering. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, he says like, he literally says like, you will think like you, it will never be enough for you. 
He yeah. says like, you will never be satisfied basically. Absolutely. Like you're doing all the work and only getting half of what you're owed. And like, he's mm-hmm. the one planting that in his mind of like, you know, he is like fully manipulating almost. Absolutely. Which Absolutely. is crazy. Yeah. And the funny thing is that on his deathbed, Bolingbroke is somehow going to remember this moment, which he wasn't present for. But he remembers in almost exact detail what was said in this moment mm-hmm. <laughs> and how, how accurate it was. You know, how yeah. Richard, you know, he's so haunted by Richard, but also haunted by what Richard said. Maybe Northumberland told him what Richard, I don't know. It seems very unlikely that Northumberland would be like, so Richard said I'm going to betray you in about half a second. Isn't that funny? Ha ha, what a good joke. You know, I don't know. And then here's this wonderful construction of unrightful kings, right? Mm. You're the rightful king. And Northumberland is planted an unrightful king on the, on the throne. I also just, I think that maybe George Lucas stole a little bit of this, you know, fear turns to anger, anger turns to hate, hate leads to <laughs> suffering. <laughs> I just like- George Lucas stealing ideas? <laughs> um, I was like, oh my God, Richard's Yoda. No yes. way. <laughs> wow. Full In transformation. The, yeah, totally. <laughs> anyway. Um, And I really enjoy here Northumberland's response, which is my guilt be on my head and there an end. Take leave and part for you must part forthwith. Doubly divorced. Bad men, you violate a twofold marriage twixt my crown and me and then betwixt me and my married wife. Let me unkiss the oath twixt thee and me. Yet not so for with a kiss twas made. Part us Northumberland, I toward the north where shivering cold and sickness pines the climb. My wife to France, from once set forth in pomp, she came adorned hither like sweet May, sent back like hollow mass or shortest of day. And must we be divided? Must we part? Aye, hand from hand, my love, and heart from heart. Banish us both and send the king with me. That were some love, but little policy. Then whither he goes, thither let me go. So two together weeping make one woe. Weep thou for me in France, I for thee here. Better far off than near be ne'er the near. Go count thy way with sighs, I mine with groans. The longest way shall have the longest moans. Twice for one step I'll groan, the way being short, and piece the way out with a heavy heart. Come, come, in wooing sorrow let's be brief, since wedding it there is such length in grief. One kiss shall stop our mouths and dumbly part. Thus give I mine, and thus take I thy heart. Give me mine own again. Tore no good part to take on me to keep and kill thy heart. So now I have mine own again. Be gone, that I may strive to kill it with a groan. We make woe wanton with this fond delay. Once more adieu, the rest let sorrow stay. Lovely. Wow. What a beautiful... We're in Romeo and Juliet all of a sudden. Oh, and everything rhymes. <laughs> um, we go from, from May day to the end of the scene is all rhyming couplets with the possible exception of be gone that I might strive to kill it with a groan, but I'm sure in OP that those two things probably rhymed. 
Girl. Yeah, I have a question about that line. Yeah. So mm, is yes. Queen saying, no, don't give me your heart because I'm heartbroken and it's useless. Is that essentially what she's saying? Like, oh, that's a really good question. Mm. So give me mine on again. Mm. Give me my heart. It, it wouldn't be good. Mm. Oh, maybe she's saying it wouldn't be good for me to break both of our hearts because yeah. mine's already broken. Uh, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was, getting, I was just like, all the rhyming couplets. Yeah. Like, What's happening? <laughs> What's actually being said here? <laughs> Great question. Um, is it always? I've always thought that rhyming couplets or any kind of rhyme is heightened emotion. Yes, and they are—they are sharing those heightened emotions. Mm -hmm. um, the the we'll see in the next with the Duke and Duch Duchess of York. I don't think they share any lines, which I think not share they don't share any rhymes which mm. i think is a telltale of their relationship compared to the king mm. and the queen that they must really love each other um yeah um and this is like the parting you know goodbye absolutely yeah. i think that's a wonderful point amy actually um Ben Crystal in his book talks about the sort of different emotional levels of different types of verse. And it's sort of like the absolute highest emotion is like, like when you have so much is, is singing, right? That's the, the highest um, sort of mode of emotional expression. And then right under that is rhyming couplets. <laughs> mm. And then, you know, under that is like, you know, blank verse and then, and then prose. But there's a really interesting kind of trajectory that, and I think you're absolutely right that the, the rhyming couplets mean that the emotions are very heightened in this, in this moment. Um, I have seen a lot of scripts and a lot of editors make the, that were some love, but little policy Northumberland's line, which doesn't make a whole lot of mm. sense to me because why would Northumberland be joining in on this, um, on this like <laughs> rhyme fest here, <laughs> like rhyme yeah. fest 2020. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> uh, I love the unkiss the oath. That's so mm -hmm. beautiful. Um, again, he's been unkinged and now he's unkissing his marriage vows. I mean, it's just it's remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the it. only, yeah, it's kind of the only love scene we get in the whole yeah. thing. I mean, there are, two, there are two kisses in this scene, right? Yeah. And if you're reading literally, like, into the language, mm -hmm. one kiss shall stop our mouths and then thus give I mine and then give me mine own again. Now yeah. I have mine own again. It's like yeah. there have to be two kisses in yes. it. Yes, absolutely. Um, for it to make sense linguistically. Just like R and J in their Just little like, sonnet. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Give me my sin again. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. And I, I love that fond here, which fond we're gonna we're gonna also see in our in our next two scenes has two meanings. Fond meaning both like foolish and mad madness, like sort of craziness, mm. but also can mean tender and loving. So it's interesting, like, which one does Richard mean and which one does the Duke of York mean in the next one he's calling someone fond. I, I think it's probably more of the foolish and the mad. 
but it's, <laughs> it's interesting that that fond has that that double implication there and that there is something both foolish and tender about this moment yeah it's i mean i keep i i keep thinking of romeo and juliet because it's so many like even talking about it's like parting is such sweet sorrow. There's so mm. many references to that. Or even the, you know, the lark scene where they're yeah. separating. It's very similar to that sort of like separation. And yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. I feel like everything is just sort of shouting at you like, they're in love. This yeah. is like the love in the play. Embrace the, <laughs> yeah. Embrace the relationship that you're seeing here. You yeah. can't really avoid it. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult. I, I think I've definitely seen a lot of interpretations that, that didn't quite resonate with me, which was that mm -hmm. Richard was like performing the wounded lover. Mm -hmm. um, but to me, it's like the language is the giveaway. You don't, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I, I was... I, it, please, Zoe, go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I was actually uh, just talking to um, Noah, my husband, for anyone who's listening to the podcast about <laughs> this. And I think it's the David Tennant version where it's like they have this weird, like, uh, homoerotic subtext with Amaral, I think. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and this scene is very much cut down, if I recall correctly, in that. And it just feels kind of like, oh, okay, well, bye, I guess. <laughs> and that's where they put the romantic emphasis. And it's just really interesting because mm. listening to this whole thing uncut, it's like, oh my God, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I think actually, if I recall correctly, because we, I, I, my, my class went and we saw that production at Stratford and he, ha he does during the, we are amazed scene, he has a kiss with O'Merle and then they got rid of the character of Exton and O'Merle was the one that killed him in the end, which has been a frequent choice that a lot of directors have made uh, recently, which it's a it's a choice you know it's a very <laughs> bold choice it gives O'Merl a very different trajectory yeah but you know I, I I can see why people do I mean I'm always a fan of like consolidating the cast and like <laughs> really like making it a very yeah. a tight story but um I just but, like yeah. haven't been reading O'Merl I don't think that tracks at all with yeah. anything portrayed in his text or his character mm -hmm. absolutely um, <laughs> absolutely interesting but does, it definitely oh sorry Mike go ahead yeah does, does O'Merl reappear in Henry the fourth no no we never okay. see him after this play okay um, I was gonna say because if they yeah he would get banished yeah. <laughs> If it was there, I was like, wait, but if he comes back. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I remember it did definitely get an audience reaction. I mean, because he was hooded when he came in. And then when he finally stabbed Richard, he like, Richard pulled the hood off. And it was O'Merle. And the whole audience went, <gasps> and it was like this huge, like, whoa, you know, moment. But it was also yeah. like, but the, it also kind of, I mean, it does, in a, in a certain way, it does dramatically make it so that the ultimate Judas betrayal, you know, that, that Richard's always True. talking about. But yeah. at the same time, there is something wonderful, sort of a banality of evil quality about Exton just misinterpreting something that he just hears, like, was it just me? Or did the king, like, really want Richard dead? What I want to do, like, kind of ask us, you know, and there's something actually more kind of 
tragic to me about not the ultimate betrayal, but like somebody who like misinterpreted something and then someone died for it. You know, there's, there's something like mo almost more deeply ironic about that than a sort of gut wrenching, even though technically like Richard is killed by a cousin. <laughs> right. But there, there's, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it's an interesting choice. I think it's, it's definitely a choice to make. And I think every production now, because that has become a very popular interpretation over just the last like five years or so, I think every production has to deal with like, who is this person who kills Richard, which we'll get mm -hmm. to when we get to um, five, four. So now we're going to take a little break from Richard and we're going to go to another part of his family, um, the York family which I love these two scenes that are back to back. To me, it's like this wonderful vignette. And I, I you know, I was, I was talking to Amy about this uh, earlier that like, I, I really like to ask as a director, so why is this scene in the play? Like, what is the significance of this scene in the play? What information does it tell the audience and how does it function within the story as a whole? And for me, the, the really important if we cut this scene, which people do, if we cut the next two scene, which people occasionally do, because it's a long play, what we lose is the effect that civil war has within a family and how civil war tears families apart. So with that in mind, let's get down to it. <laughs> let's meet the York family. My Lord, you told me you would tell the rest when weeping made you break the story off of our two cousins coming into London. Where did I leave? At that said stop, my Lord, where rude misgoverned hands from windows tops threw dust and rubbish on King Richard's head. Then, as I said, the Duke Great Bolinbroke mounted upon a hot and fiery steed, which his aspiring rider seemed to know, with slow but stately pace kept on his course, whilst all tongues cried, God save thee, Bolinbroke. He would have thought the very windows spake. So many greedy looks of young and old through casements darted their desiring eyes upon his visage, and that the, all the walls with painted imagery had said at once, Jesu preserve thee, welcome, Bolinbroke. Whilst he, from the one side to the other turning, bareheaded, lower than his proud steed's neck, bespake them thus, I thank you, countrymen. And thus still doing, thus he passed along. Alack, poor Richard, where rode he the whilst? As in a theatre the eyes of men, after a well-graced actor leaves the stage, are idly bent on him that enters next, thinking his prattle to be tedious, even so or with much more contempt men's eyes did scowl on gentle Richard. No man cried, God save him. No joyful tongue gave him his welcome home, but dust was thrown upon his sacred head, which with such gentle sorrow he shook off, his face still combating with tears and smiles the badges of his grief and patience. But had not God for some strong purpose steeled the hearts of men, they must perforce have melted, and barbarism itself have pitied him. But heaven hath a hand in these events, to whose high will we bound our calm contents. To Bolinbroke are we sworn subjects now, whose state and honor eye for eye allow. Wow. 
So I love that York becomes the chorus in this amazing, yeah. these two speeches. He sort of paints this incredible picture of, of this contrast of Richard and Bolingbroke. Um, any, any, any thoughts on, on this I just, little? I love the theater imagery at the top. It's very similar. I know we've talked about this before, but to the imagery in the end of Macbeth as well. Mm, yeah, little meta theatrical moments sort of sprinkled in here. I love that bit about the the well graced actor leaving the stage <laughs> and the audience being like, "Oh man, who's this Joker <laughs> for the next person who comes in? I want the other guy." <laughs> it's such a funny. <laughs> it's it's just great. <laughs> and I think Ariane, I think also um, you spoke earlier one one of the earlier recording sessions about the rise in popularity of Bolingbroke. And I think this yeah. scene serves to, to really demonstrate that. I mean, we've heard about it a little bit, but here we, it, we see in stark contrast, the two figures before the public and the reaction of the public to them respectively. Absolutely. And, and that, um, you know, Bolingbroke is obviously just very good at manipulating. Oh, yeah. at manipulating the crowd too that he like i love this image that he's he's lower than his steed's neck like he's just bowing to all the people <laughs> it's like is he gonna fall off his horse like what's going on <laughs> there's, it's a really interesting image and i love there's uh, this horse is going to be very very important and i don't understand quite why there's this obsession with this horse um well, it's going to be mentioned in in five five as well Right, because it was Richard's horse, right? It was and, Richard's horse. And Richard's like, even the horse has betrayed me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But just even the horse. <laughs> even the horse. And then he, he gets this, one of my favorite lines, forgiveness horse. <laughs> like, why do I rail on you? Like, <laughs> such a great line. Like, please forgive me, oh horse. But I, I love that the aspiring rider seemed to know. Like, did they have this rivalry over this horse? Like, was it given to them by Edward, the, you know, the Black Prince or something? It's just an interesting, it's like the crown becomes the horse too. Like they both knew it. <laughs> and now one of them has it. It belongs to the other one now. So it's clear that, that York is sympathetic towards Richard, but the yes. way he's spinning it, I guess for himself as well as his wife, is that this is divinely ordained somehow. Heaven hath a hand in these events. Yes. So God has done this. What can I do? Yeah. He works in mysterious ways. <laughs> We've got but to, God, yeah. <laughs> but, but the problem is God didn't do this. No. Bowling, yeah. Book it. Yeah. And that's, that's the bad part. And, and if York in his head is like, oh no, this is God's way this will all be fine. I think he's trying to shirk off the bad mojo that's going to yeah. come. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. Well, oh, and this is like, so this scene and the scene right before with Richard and his wife, I've, um, I've been enjoying Richard as, as a character because he's very interesting, but I haven't found him deeply sympathetic until this point because largely all of the perspectives we've gotten on him are kind of from his own point of view even him looking yeah. at himself in a mirror and like describing <laughs> himself but in the last two scenes we've sort of finally gotten other people talking about him and how they see him from an outside perspective we've gotten his wife and we've gotten york and their view of him is what has made me feel like, just like sharply sad for richard's mm fate 
seeing somebody else have a have a perspective on like just how tragic it, it is the the imagery of like nobody you know nobody cried god save him no one welcomed him home like they threw garbage at him his face still combating with tears and smiles so like mm. is that that thing where you're like sm- trying to smile but you're also like n- you don't want to (laughs) so you're like trying to not cry is that what that is because that's what that sounds like to me absolutely well and that he's I think his I I love the that his face is at war with itself yeah between crying and smiling and that each of those like the crying represents his grief and the smiling is sort of like his his patience and we haven't seen Richard be a patient person so this is clearly like a a, a shift in in character <laughs> and the the tears and smiles also are not i'm not sure if the if the little uh symbol was in effect back then but the tradi- isn't isn't there a traditional theatrical symbol of the two masks one of them absolutely smiling and the other in tragedy or something like that yeah comedy and tragedy absolutely and I think we're gonna we're gonna see that this the comedy tragedy runs very deep in these next two scenes, um, very similar to what we were saying with with Act Four with all of the nobles. It becomes kind of a, a comedy, but it's very serious for them. I think similarly we're going to have that within the next. And and in comes our third player now, O'Merle. Oh, I think it's interesting that uh, Shakespeare changed it. The Duchess of York at this point was not, was a stepmother, was not actually O'Merle's mother. Um, but sh- Shakespeare makes it his mother, I think, for much stronger dramatic effect. It's always interesting, like, what little things he changes. Um, so I think this is, this is one of them that's like, so in comes O'Merle that was. Here comes my son, O'Merle. O'Merle that was. But that is lost for being Richard's friend. And madam, you must call him Rutland now. I am in Parliament pledge for his truth and lasting fealty to the new-made king. Welcome, my son. Who are the violets now that strew the green lap of the new-come spring? Madam, I know not, nor I greatly care not. God knows I had as lief be none as one. Well, bear you well in this new t- spring of time, lest you be cropped before you come to prime. What news from Oxford? Do these jousts and triumphs hold? Broad I know, my lord, they do. You will be there, I know. If God prevent not, I purpose so. What seal is that that hangs without thy bosom? Hey, looks thou pale? Let me see the writing. My lord, tis nothing. No matter then who see it, I will be satisfied. Let me see the writing. I do beseech your grace to pardon me. It is a matter of small consequence, which for some reasons I would not have seen. Which for some reasons, sir, I mean to see. I fear, I fear. Which should you fear? Tis nothing but some bond that he has entered into for gay apparel against the triumph day. Bound to himself? What doth he with a bond that he is bound to? Wife, thou art a fool. Boy, let me see the writing. I do beseech you, pardon me. I may not show it. I will be satisfied. Let me see it, I say. Treason! Foul treason! Villain! Traitor! Knave! What is the matter, my lord? Oh, who is within there? Saddle my horse! God, for his mercy, what treachery is here! Why, what is it, my lord? Give me my boots, I say. Saddle my horse! 
Now by mine honor, by my life, by my troth, I will appeach the villain. What is the matter? Peace, foolish woman. I will not peace. What is the matter, O Merle? Good mother, be content. It is no more than my poor life must answer. Thy life answer? Bring me my boots. I will unto the king. Strike him, O Merle. Poor boy, thou art amazed. Hence, villain, never more come in my sight. Give me my boots, I say. Why, York, what wilt thou do? Wilt thou not hide the trespass of thine own? Have we more sons, or are we like to have? Is not my teeming date drunk up with time? And wilt thou pluck my fair son from mine age and rob me of a happy mother's name? Is he not like thee? Is he not thine own? Thou fond, mad woman, wilt thou conceal this dark conspiracy? A dozen of them here have tamed the sacrament and interchangeably set down their hands to kill the king at Oxford. Okay. He shall none. Oops. I'm going to just pause here. So, wow, that happened fast. <laughs> There's already a treasonous plot to overthrow. Like, civil war has already started, right? Even from all these people prophesying that it would. Also interesting that the people who prophesied that it would are the people who wrote their names down to kill the king at Oxford, which constitutes the beginning of a civil war. So all the people who prophesied are active members of a civil uprising against Bolingbroke. I always find this scene to be like both heartbreaking and very comedic at the same time. Like it's, it's so sad. Here's a father who's like wanting to have his son executed for treason and the mother being like, do you think he's not your, your son? He's your son. Come on. We're not going to have any more sons. Don't, don't. I love that. Don't rob me of a mother's name. Like that's incredible. Like if you take him away, you will take away again. It's like Richard losing his name of King. She's going to lose her name of mother, which is obviously something she holds very dear. But yeah, are there any thoughts so far on this, um, this wonderful- I'm used by York's, I guess, volteface, I guess would be the word for it. Because I feel like he felt very, I don't know, like paternal and like nice at the beginning. Because like yeah. even when he was like talking to Bolingbroke, he like invited him to his home and stuff. Yeah. And it seemed like, I guess he was just kind of waffling between both Richard and Bolingbroke and just trying to do right. But as mm -hmm. soon as Ormerle is like trying to kill someone, York is like, this is wrong. Like he sets down the line. I feel like York was like gray area and now he's black and white and it's yeah. confusing. I, I, I totally agree. I think there, there's something interesting. The, the, the only hint of this York I think that we get is when Bolingbroke comes back to England and York is like, how dare you? You are going against the king. And if I had power, I would whoop all of you but I don't, so come on in and we'll have dinner, you know? But <laughs> there's like a really, there's an interesting, like we saw a flash of that York, but it's interesting that it's so amplified by, of course, this was his, his nephew's betrayal of his other nephew, but now it's his son betraying his, his king. And I think, I think there's something, my interpretation, and Carol, please come in on this if, if you like, but that, there is finally a semblance of peace in the realm and by being a part of a treasonous plot, 
this is just going to mean more violence. Um, and so we've got to squash it now. Well, as Amy was saying, I mean, what what he does when he puts, puts it all on God's shoulders is wrong, but that's what he does. Yeah. And he's that's where he's taking his stand. This is this is the will of God, and that's where I'm standing. And then he says, I am in Parliament pledged for his truth. Mm. And and what what exactly would that entail to be pledged for your son's fealty? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so it, it's not just O'Merle or Rutland that will go down. It's the whole family yeah, and everybody attached to them. And that gives us much higher stakes as well. Because he's got, he's got the House of York to deal with. Yeah. Well, and also as one of the highest ranking uh, nobles in the land, um, and you're sort of in a protector, you have been, a you were sort of a interim king while Richard was away, you know, any, any sort of, what is the, what is the phrase? Um, the, the king's wife must be beyond reproach or whatever, you know, it's like the, <laughs> the king's uncle and family and the, the royal family must be above reproach, you know. Caesar's wife. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> that phrase. I was like, what is that phrase? So Amy, what do you, what do you think the Duchess is? I mean, they, they both have the same sets of information, but mm. she is fed up with him from the get go. <laughs> well, I, I think she's got this, I don't know. Sometimes I see these, these mothers hang on to the sons like mm. crazy and, and God forbid O'Merle ever gets married. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, God forbid the were cut. Um, but I think she's just over the top for this boy. And yeah. she calls him my son, not yeah. our son, my son, mm -hmm. which I think it's really interesting. Um, so mm -hmm. I just think she's so attached to O'Merle and this, it, it doesn't make any sense to her that her husband's going to turn him in for treason. It's like, no, 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 we'll cover this up. No yeah. problem. Stay right. <laughs> you know, oh no, my baby boy. You know, I love That's that. My That's my take on the Duchess. Yeah. yeah, I love that. And I, I mean, I love her response. Like York is like, they're going to kill the king. And she's like, he won't, we'll keep him here. <laughs> like he can't kill the king. We'll keep him here. Like that's just the most amazing response. Just Don't like, worry. Like, he won't have a hand in it. <laughs> Do you think sons grow on trees? Like, is it, is it like <laughs> There is an interesting, and you know, we, we talked a lot about this relationship, the, the, the powerful father figure for a lot of these sons in here and the, the relationship between um, Gaunt and, and Bolingbroke, but also this sort of implied family history and reverence for Edward, the Black Prince, and for the grandfather figure of uh, Edward III. But we don't get a lot in this play about the relationship between mothers and their children, um, because Queen Isabel and Richard do not have a, a child the the this is our our mother moment and you know there's other there's other history plays like king john for example has three mothers in it and it's so much of that play is about the relationship between very intense powerful overbearing mothers and their very devoted sons so there's there's an interesting theme i think that runs through a lot of these history plays 
the Ariana? mothers are badass. <laughs> Ariana? Yes, of course. May, yes. I, may I just say a couple of things? I'm sorry to divert from this very interesting topic, but two things that struck me as we were reading this was number one, the, the serving man. I mean, that's kind of a, a hilarious, <laughs> especially when the Duchess screams at him. It's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of an, you know, a chance for some humor. But the other thing, and I'm, maybe I'm missing something, why is a Merle carrying this extraordinarily incriminating <laughs> stuff around his neck out in the open? What? This is a little What's idiot. That? I was going to say, I don't think O'Merle's very smart, <laughs> is my take on him so far. I, I read it, as, and with the next scene, too, I read it as that he's the one who's supposed to kill Bolingbroke. Mm. So he's been given an order, mm. because then he gets there first, and it's like, oh, it's just the two of them alone in a room together with his, his, his cousin, who he trusts. So it's like... To me, that was what how I read it. Maybe I, that might be wrong, but and that's sort of because they they have a bit where um, uh, the Duchess of York here is like talking to Omeral, being like, "Poor boy, thou art amazed." It implies to me sort of maybe something of a state of shock. Yeah. Um, and even earlier, before um, York, you know, grabs the paper from him, his responses are pretty minimal and small yeah. um they do sound like somebody who maybe is like processing some big information so i think that makes a lot of sense mike like when why he might be stupid enough to like have this in his have hand of just like oh <laughs> shit yeah uh <laughs> why not lock it in a box somewhere yeah, <laughs> yeah. absolutely this I is think... also why that choice is so weird to have O'Merle kill Richard. Exactly. Yeah. Um, it, it, I just don't like, think it actually, really... Actually, I'll kill the other one. Yeah. yeah. Never mind. <laughs> that <laughs> everything, right? It's really strange. <laughs> it's, it's cool. It's a great dramatic twist. But yeah, I yeah. think you do have to do some... You, you have to do a lot of behind-the-scenes character work there to make sense how he gets to that point. Yeah. And amazed is a wonderful word that, again, it, it means something different than, than we think of it. Like, oh, that's amazing. Um, amazed, literally think of the word maze. And amazed was like the feeling of being lost in a gigantic maze. It's like bewildered, dumbfounded, confused, scared, like all of those things. I think that word is such a punch in the face word when it appears in Shakespeare. Like you are, it's, it's almost like undone, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I just don't, I've lost my bearings. I do think that O'Merle, just in terms of characters, he seems to me to be a bit of a follower, not, not so much a leader, right? I think like in the scenes that we've, we've seen him in before, like, oh, Richard, you don't like Bolingbroke? I'll tell you some jokes about him where we just said farewell that's all we said you know <laughs> and then he you know he kind of has to lash out and act for against all these people that are accusing him of treason but he has to get all blustery for that scene and then when he's I, I love this this bit that the duchess says who are the violets yeah you know that are in this new come spring who are the who are the the people that are most beautified which is a vile phrase um <laughs> like who are the 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 violets in this in this new realm but yeah um let's let's go from the um to kill the king at oxford because i just i also sorry i have oh, yeah, a please, tiny, this yeah. is like a tiny maybe not even significant thing but i just <laughs> love the 
name change of O'Marl to Rutland. Yes. Like, I feel like in that tiny detail, it tells you so much about, like, what these different eras are of these two kings. Like, O'Marl is such a romantic-sounding name. Yes. With the vowels and the... It's almost, like, French-sounding or something. And then you get, like, Rutland, which is, like... (laughs) You know, like northern, like very like hard and direct. Yeah. It's like you hear already the total difference. In that is two, a like, beautiful years. observation. Oh my gosh, I love well, No wonder Omarl <laughs> wants to go assassinate Bolingbrook. He's like, I want my cool name back. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> also, I think um, the set piece needs to be like. York has to have some pretty magnificent boots because of how many times he calls them. <laughs> like, those have got to be a really good costume investment right there. Like, check out my boots! You know, it's like, they're, they're, they're pretty awesome. But yeah, I, I just want to hear the Duchess's we'll keep him here line, which is maybe my favorite in the like my favorite solution to treason. Don't worry, we'll keep him in his room. That way he can't commit treason. Like, yeah, so good. It's a wonderful like parenting technique. <laughs> like, keep your child in their room so they can't commit treason. <laughs> so they um, can't assassinate kings. <laughs> so good. But again, like we haven't had a lot of domestic scenes. So it's that's what that's the other thing I love about this is we've had a lot of these big public scenes, and this is finally we're like in someone's home. <laughs> you know, we're no longer in a giant hall or on the beach or in a huge castle we're, we're like in someone's home <laughs> domestic scene oh yeah sure <laughs> go right ahead get those give boots. me my boots i say why york what wilt thou do wilt thou not hide the trespass of thine own have we more sons or are we like to have is not my teeming date drunk up with time and wilt thou pluck my fair son from mine age and rob me of a happy mother's name is he not like thee? Is he not thine own? Thou fond, mad woman, wilt thou conceal this dark conspiracy? A dozen of them here obtain the sacrament and interchangeably set down their hands to kill the king at Oxford. He shall be none. We'll keep him here. Then what is that to him? Away, fond woman, were he twenty times my son, I would appeach him. Hast thou groaned for him, as I have done, Thou wouldst be more pitiful. But now I know thy mind. Thou dost suspect that I have been disloyal to thy bed, and that he is a bastard, (laughs) not thy son. Sweet York, sweet husband, be not of that mind. He is as like thee as a man may be, not like to me or any of my kin, and yet I love him. Make way, unruly woman. After a merle, Mount thee upon his horse, spur post, and get before him to the king, and beg thy pardon ere he do accuse thee. I'll not long be behind. Though I be old, I doubt not but to ride as fast as York, and never will I rise up from the ground till Bolingbroke have pardoned thee. Away, be gone. She's so amazing. <laughs> now, I want to I add something else here. They've had this talk before that he thinks O'Merle is not his real son. <laughs> and, she, yeah. and that he is a bastard, not thy son. Yeah. And it's like, 
you know, that's why you don't like him. <laughs> I, I, I think he's just slowing him so down. I, I mean, I, that whole speech, he, I don't think she really thinks that he thinks that she's been disloyal. <laughs> I, I think she's stalling. I, I and oh, oh interesting. Hmm. No, the problem is that you don't think he's really your son. No, just get out of my way. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get you get really snappy. You know, it's like okay, Emerald, get on your horse, get going. Yeah, yeah. Hit the trail. Yeah. <laughs> also, just the image of this entire family just like all taking horses, like trying to outride each other yeah. along, like I don't know, probably the same road. Like, <laughs> family <laughs> race. <laughs> no, like, should, I'm idea. sorry. Are we riding alongside each other? Should I like drop behind a little bit? Like, it's awkward. Bill, go ahead. I, love, well, I was just gonna say I love the idea, the advice she gives him. You know, go and just say we we're gonna kill you, but I apologize and everything will be fine with that <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely it is amazing that that turn as you say carol of that happens it's like the the tactic shift goes yeah. from like pleading huh. and like oh sweet york to earl oh Merle, go like get the thing do the thing but like she just instantly as soon as as soon as york leaves the room is like all business mode <laughs> that speech reminds me of porsche's speech and and you know kate to hotspur it's it's this almost coy, coquettish. Aren't mm. I your wife? Don't yeah. I deserve? Put me in the suburbs of your good pleasure. What are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. And and then as soon as he's gone, right? She's just like snaps into action. She's very practical. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm sure she like on the way out, she like nudged his horse in the ribs. <laughs> so like <laughs> so the horse is like ow, <laughs> like slightly slower. But yeah, eminently practical, um, which I think we find uh, most of the women in these history plays are, are very practical, except for um, what's her name, who's the who decides to dabble in witchcraft and then gets herself gets herself burned in uh, Henry the Sixth Part Two. That's a fun one. Can't wait till we get to that one. Deal with witchcraft, yeah. <laughs> but so then they so they all leave. And then we get um, this wonderful moment where it's our only, he's not even named, but we get our first glimpse of Prince Hal, <laughs> um, which is not a terribly flattering portrait of Prince Hal. Can no man tell me of my unthrifty son? Tis full three months since I did see him last. If any plague hang over us, tis he. I would to God, my lords, he might be found. Inquire at London amongst the taverns there, for there they he, for there they say he daily doth frequent with unrestrained loose companions. Even such they say as stand in narrow lanes and beat our watch and rob our passengers, while he, young wanton and a feminine boy, takes on the point of honor to support so dissolute a crew. <laughs> My lord, some two days since I saw the prince and told him of those triumphs held in Oxford. And what said the gallant? Um, his answer was, he would unto the stews, and from the commonest creature pluck a glove, and wear it as a favor, and with that he would unhorse the lustiest challenger. As dissolute as desperate, but yet through both I see some sparks of better hope, which elder years may happily bring forth. 
but who comes here? So I love that that's like such a little, oh my God, I can't believe he said that. But you know what? With a few more years, I'm sure he'll be fine. It's like exactly, our little, yeah. like, it's like the entire trajectory of Henry the Fourth and the two Henry Four plays, like in one line. It's like, <laughs> oh, I hate you, but you're going to be great. <laughs> you know, <It's> like, <laughs> he just has this like whiplash with Prince Hal always. It's just so funny. So the stews here, very important to know that the stews meant the brothels, right? So Hal is basically saying to Hotspur, it's always fun to note that this is like a Hal-Hotspur interaction. So Hotspur runs into Hal and he's like, hey, Hal, you going to go to these tribes? He's like, oh, yeah, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to a brothel. I'm going to take a horse glove and then I'm going to hit somebody with it. You know, it's like... <laughs> All right, Mr. Contrarian, like we just saw this whole thing with the gloves and the nobles. And he's like, I don't want a noble's glove. I want a prostitute's glove. You know, like it's just, it's so silly. Like it's such a silly. Um... And then we also get this, the Gadsill robbery uh, prophesied for us with the like Hal hanging out with all of these, these folks who, who, who beat passengers and they, or beat the, the watchmen and they rob the travelers, which is exactly what's going to happen in Act 2 of King Henry IV Part 1. So it's, <laughs> it's a really fun little sort of, while we're on the subject of the future, let's like have a little <laughs> tiny little scene where, we, and, and again, there's kind of a, a sweet domesticity to this scene. We haven't seen Bolingbroke like this. It shows us a different side of him. And Bolingbroke also, I, I mean, it's not really mentioned in this play, but he was really set up to uh, to have a successful royal lineage because he had four sons who survived infancy who were all like very healthy young men at this point. And if you are a king, you want heirs and having four sons that survived infancy is like a quite a remarkable achievement in this time. <laughs> there weren't a lot of people that had four sons that survived infancy. So well done you. <laughs> Um, something also just occurs to me here listening to the speech that's more relevant for the, you know the next couple of plays the henry fours and whatnot as how kind of comes into his own um I've, I've been watching the crown so this is like all the <laughs> stuff that's on my head um but it occurs to me that how would not have been raised with the idea that he would be king someday yes uh unlike you know if unlike uh people who are born to you know the 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 rightful king or whatever um who are raised as the heir you're going to be the king one day these are the behaviors expected of you and um and that would not have been the case for hal um so that's uh, i don't really yeah i don't have a lot more to say about it it's just interesting <laughs> it's a wonderful character point you know the most that Hal was born to be up until this point was the Duke of Lancaster, right? He was going to become the Duke of Lancaster when his father died. And now he's the crown prince. Now he suddenly becomes the heir once his father takes that. I mean, that's got to be an interesting shift in uh, personal responsibilities and expectation. Although also uh, very much unlike the Henry plays, Prince Hal was like, wheeling and dealing and very much active in politics from the age of like 13 or 14. I mean, he was like negotiating peace treaties when he was like 16 years old. He was very, very involved in government. 
but there is this the prodigal son myth of Henry V sort of again as Hal says at the beginning of Henry IV part one adds to the greatness of his mythology that he was this wastrel and then he became the greatest general that ever sat on the English throne there is such it's like he creates talking we were talking about mythology earlier and it's like he creates his own myth through this um, which is really which is really cool it also makes sense like why Henry the fourth would be so much more strict or you know so mm. stressed out about him about how being more king-like or prince-like yes um like to and it, it I've I've never thought about that Myri about like how he wasn't you know necessarily in line for the throne in quite the same way and it does really give new meaning to like here and will I imitate the sun and all mm. of those speeches that Hal has where his language in contrast to Richard's language they're exactly opposite mm. because you have Richard who's someone who believes even when his crown is taken from him he is you know like this Christ-like divine figure and you have Hal who is the exact you know foil to that in a way where he is you know imitating what it is to be a ruler and trying to behave in a king-like way um but deep down he's like you know of the people which is also his strength yes so interesting to see those like in contrast i love that that is marvelous and here we have another prodigal son entering just as <laughs> Henry has talked about his prodigal son. In comes the Duke of York's prodigal son, um, which I think is wonderful, right? Because there's always doubles in Shakespeare. There's always, always, always um, doubles that happen. Where's the king? It means our cousin that he stares and looks so wildly. God save your grace. I do beseech your majesty to have some conference with your grace alone. Withdraw yourselves and leave us here alone. What is the matter with our cousin now? Forever may my knees grow to the earth, my tongue cleave to my roof within my mouth, unless a pardon ere I rise or speak. Intended or committed was this fault. If on the first, how heinous ere it be, to win thy afterlove, I pardon thee. Then give me leave that I may turn the key, that no man enter till my tale be done. Have thy desire. My liege, beware. Look to thyself, thou hast a traitor in thy presence there question on this bit yeah um, so I, in the copy i have villain is taken out oh and i've noticed it's, it's in a couple of different spots too some people keep it some people take it out would you would you like it kept in kept in yes yeah i think yeah. so wow it's interesting i think that it's it's wonderful that Bolingbroke says i pardon you no matter what it was you know and then Again, there's that deeply dangerous grenade of you have a traitor in your midst, right? And so who's in your midst but O'Merle? And then all of a sudden, if he's a traitor, then he's also a villain. So I love that it's like, I'll make you safe, as in like, I will kill you. So I think that's a, that's a pretty direct threat. I also love this is one of the few stage directions in Shakespeare that gives you a description of what the character is like when they're entering. Enter O'Merle <laughs> amazed is, yeah, um, is an actual it. stage direction, which is extraordinary. Again, amazed being that huge word of confused, bewildered, lost, made. 
it's, 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 it's a huge word. And I love that you did this, Mike, that what's the matter with our cousin now? As in like, <laughs> there have been so many issues with this guy. <laughs> like, so what's the problem today, cousin? Like, what do you need? It's so good. Like, it's just to me that gives like so much context for, for like, oh, Merle in general. Like, and O'Merle starts the problem. with you, with your, and then they all shift to thee mm. when York comes in. Yeah, because it becomes a total family drama, right? It's really right. interesting. It's like the stakes are so high. It's like nobody can do with formalities at this point. It's something like that. I mean, also, uh, so if you're looking at it in the most basic and like, the thou thy thine as stage direction kind of thing. It also can give you a really interesting staging idea with kind of the unrehearsed Shakespeare idea where they're all using these, so they're all extremely close to each other. Yeah. So kind of like scuffling. Absolutely. <laughs> I, t I love that. That there's, yeah, that, that, that I pardon thee becomes, and then villain I'll make thee safe. That there is a closing of the distance there is a really interesting um, staging idea, which is sort of almost counterintuitive because you're like, if, if there is a traitor, you want to get away from danger, right? It's like the first rule of stage combat. How, what's the best defense is distance. So th th there's definitely an interesting, there's something interesting to be explored in that. Awesome. So we still have York within. <laughs> also love how uh, the rhythm, it's like, in order to complete that first line of iambic pentameter, you do need knocks because <laughs> it's a short line. So I love that it's like knock, knock, my liege, beware, look to myself. Like it's the complete line. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Villain, I'll make thee safe. Stay thy revengeful hand. Thou hast no cause to fear. Open the door, secure, foolhardy king. Shall I for love speak treason to thy face? Open the door, I will break it open. Uncle, speak. Recover breath, tell us how near is danger that we may arm us to encounter it. Peruse this writing here, and thou shalt know the treason that my haste forbids me show. Remember as thou readst thy promise past, I do repent me, read not my name <laughs> there. My heart is not confederate with my hand. It was, villain, ere thy hand did set it down. I tore it from the traitor's bosom, king. Fear and not love begets his penitence. Forget to pity him, lest thy pity prove a serpent that will sting thee to the heart. O oh, heinous, strong, and bold conspiracy, O loyal father of a treacherous son, thou sheer, immaculate, and silver fountain, from whence this stream through muddy passages hath held his current and defiled himself, thy overflow of good converts to bad, and thy abundant goodness shall excuse this deadly blot in thy digressing son. So shall my virtue be his vices bawd, and he shall spend mine honor with his shame as thriftless sons their scraping father's gold. Mine honor lives when his dishonor dies, or my shamed life in his dishonor lies. Thou killst me in his life, giving him breath. The traitor lives, the true man's put to death. But ho, my liege, for God's sake, let me in. What shrill-voiced suppliant makes this eager cry? A woman, and thy aunt, great king, tis I. Speak with me, pity me, open the door. A beggar begs that never begged before. 
Our scene is altered from a serious thing and now changed to the beggar and the king. My dangerous <laughs> cousin, let your mother in. I know she's come to pray for your foul sin. So <laughs> pause here for a second. <laughs> um, I, I love that. That, that Bollingbrook's like, oh boy, this is just gonna be a total yep. farce. <laughs> like, here we go. <laughs> it's interesting to me. I love that, that Bollingbrook, well now King Henry calls calls York the the sheer immaculate silver fountain and O'Merle is this muddy stream that's like it's been yeah. defiled um but also that you make the decision to pardon O'Merle this early but of course the duchess doesn't hear that so <laughs> we're gonna have a, a nice beggar in the king moment here and, and you really have to ask why York is not okay with the pardon I mean yeah he- he upheld his honor, right? He saved the House of York, but now it's not enough. Yeah. He wants his son having drawn yeah. and quartered. Father, why don't you love me? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I did think you were a bastard. Amy was right all along. <laughs> oh, and I just had one thing. So I think, Mike, it's a suppliant. Uh, um, it's sort of an elision of a squeezed in all of those fun little vowels into one there. And I, I love uh, the the repetition of beggar begged that never begged before the beggar and the king. Like there's there's so many just like one, two, three, four punches of, of repetition <laughs> in here. Yeah, I love it. It's like Bolingbroke's one moment with the audience. He's like, all right, guys, so it's going to be funny up in here. <laughs> like, it's just like such a fourth wall breaking moment of like, oh. well, Here's my meta theatrical moment. Take that, Richard. You know, like I'm gonna have a relationship with the audience. Like there's something, <laughs> there's something kind of cute about that to me. Yeah. But yeah, so in comes in comes our our wonderful Duchess, who is just so magnificent. All right. If thou do pardon, whosoever pray, more sins for this forgiveness prosper may. This festered joint cut off the rest rest sound this let alone will all the rest confound oh king believe not this hard-hearted man love loving not itself none other can thou frantic woman what dost thou make here shall thy old dugs once more a traitor rear sweet york be patient hear me gentle liege rise up good aunt not yet i thee beseech Forever will I walk upon my knees and never see day that the happy sees till thou give joy, until thou bid me joy by pardoning Rutland, my transgressing boy. And to my mother's prayers I bend my knee. Against them both my true joints bended be. Ill mayst thou thrive if thou grant any grace. Pleads he in earnest, look upon his face. His eyes do drop no tears, his prayers are in jest. His words come from his mouth, ours from our breast. He prays but faintly and would be denied. We pray with heart and soul and all beside. His weary joints would gladly rise, I know. Our knees still kneel till the ground they grow. His prayers are full of false hypocrisy, ours of true zeal and deep integrity. Our prayers do outpray his then let them have that mercy which true prayer ought to have. Good aunt, stand up. Nay, do not say stand up. Say pardon first, and afterwards stand up. 
And if I were thy nurse, thy tongue to teach, pardon should be the first word of thy speech. I never longed to hear a word till now. Say pardon, king. Let pity teach thee how. The word is short, but not so short as sweet. No word like pardon for king's mouth so meet. Speak it in French, king. Say pardonnez-moi. Dost thou teach pardon, pardon to destroy? Ah, my sour husband, my hard-hearted lord, that sets the word itself against the word. Speak pardon as tis current in our land, the chopping French we do not understand. Thine eye begins to speak. Set thy tongue there, or in thy piteous heart plant thou thine ear, that hearing how our plaints and prayers do pierce, pity may prove thee pardon to rehearse. Good aunt, stand up. I do not sue to stand. Pardon is all the suit I have in hand. I pardon him as God shall pardon me. Oh, happy vantage of a kneeling knee. Yet am I sick with fear. Speak it again. Twice saying pardon doth not pardon twain, but makes one pardon strong. With all my heart I pardon him. A god on earth thou art. But for our trusty brother-in-law and the abbot, with all the rest of the consorted crew, destruction straight shall dog them at their heels. Good uncle, help to order several powers to Oxford or wherever these traitors are. They shall not live within this world, I swear, but I will have them if I once know where. Uncle, farewell, and cousin too, adieu. Your mother well hath prayed and prove you true. Come, my old son, I pray God make thee new. Mike, do you have, with all my heart, I pardon him? Yes. Wow. Is that not in there? No, and it, it ruins a, the line. I pardon, I pardon him with all, with all my heart, my heart. on earth thou art. But it's interesting. There, there's a couple other uh, textual variants uh, around here, but I think it's incredible that since the Duchess came in, or before the Duchess came in, from the way back, like four lines before we first see her, mine honor lives when his dishonor dies, we are then in rhyming couplets until until King yep. Henry's final speech. I mean, that's extraordinary to have a whole scene in rhyming couplets. I think, as you say, Amy, that, that means that the, the stakes are incredibly high. I love that she kind of just bulldozes over York with her entrance. Like, York talks so much before she comes in and then is like, it kind of reminds me of uh, the Monty Python sketch, the, the Confuse-a-Cat. Like, <laughs> you know, when it's like Michael Palin and, and, and Terry Jones and... Terry Jones is the pepper pot wife and they're explaining to the doctor and he's trying to get a word in and she goes Shh, every time he like opens his mouth <laughs> and completes his sentence. It's so good. It's like one of the funniest things. Anyway, uh, but I love that there is, there is, um, she just comes in and takes over the space. It's just extraordinary. And that outpray, I, I love that she sort of invents a word. Like <laughs> our prayers are better than his. In fact, they, they're out praying his prayers. Like, that's how good they are. You know, it's just, it's an extraordinary, um, also that O'Merle just stops speaking. Like, he's yeah. just, even though this is about him, he just loses the ability. <laughs> he's too amazed, right? He's Myra? very amazed. He's, he's amazed. deeply amazed. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. 
also um, like I just envision like bits of his childhood when his mom's like on a tear about something and it's just like no just she'll yeah, yeah she'll it's take fine. care of it yeah it's... Mommy knows best. <laughs> I I envision the the York and the Duchess you know kneeling and every time they say something they like crawl yeah. a little closer and then she's like giving him the elbow you know, I can see that. I mean, there's, a, there's, there's comedy. I mean, the language is such that, you know, she's trying to, they're trying to one up each other. And if they just elbow their way up to Bolingbroke, they'll get their way. Type. Yeah. I love that. I love that image that there's sort of, again, it's like we get a, we get an actual visual representation of that race to, to Bolingbroke on stage <laughs> with the little like on the knees, kind of like, no, no, me first, me first. That's, that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful uh, image. And, and thank you, Carol, for your pardonnez moi, because that's just <laughs> such a great, you know, you have to say pardonnez moi so that it, it um, so that it rhymes with destroy. Uh, yeah. which is just such a great, it always gets a laugh in every production I've seen because it's like, yeah, speaking of French. <laughs> like, and, man, and, they just do not like the French in England. <laughs> and, and that's York's last line of the play, yeah. which I think is really weird. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you've completely shut me up after this and I have nothing to say. <laughs> nothing more. <laughs> Done. Let's go home. Then you go home and you start speaking French. <laughs> That's the conclusion of yours. <laughs> Just to piss off your wife. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's got to be awkward in that house from that point forward, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, I remember when I, I staged this with some of the wonderful upstart crows of Santa Fe and uh, my young actor who was playing the Duke of York after the, I pardon him with all my heart. He was, he was playing the Duke of York and he just stood up and went, oh. <laughs> it was just such a wonderful like conclusion of the character. Like, I just don't get anything I want. You know, it's just like, um, it, was, it was a wonderful little, um, little, little turn that he did there. So thus ends our, our, our little York mini, mini drama that we, that we just had. I mean, that's it's quite it's quite something that 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 little two scene vignette that we get of that family, and the wonderful antithesis of my old son. Um, I pray God make me new. Is is such an interesting like? I wonder what she means by that. You know, it's an interesting antithesis to end that scene. Yeah. Uh, are you want me to switch those? I, I looked it up in the folio. For some reason, mine has that backwards. Oh, know. interesting. Yeah, let's switch it just so that it rhymes. We we gotta love our rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it's they they both scan. I just I'm, this is the Arden version I'm reading off of, but I don't know why yeah. they switched that for some reason. Oh. oh, that is interesting. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. Always, always wish we had like a a textual scholar to be like, why would they do that? <laughs> and then they could just give us all the answers. Um, that would be nice. <laughs> But yeah, um, so then, so we had Richard saying goodbye to his queen uh, as we're tracking Act 5. We then had this, I call it the York family drama with 5-2 and 5-3. And now we have this very unusual little scene um, with Exton and I guess one of his servants, which is very much, again, maybe this is just, all of this is just reminding me of different British television shows, but I'm thinking of uh, that Michelin web look. There's this wonderful scene where this wonderful sketch where like the evil guy is like 
yes, make him disappear. And the guy's like, you mean kill him, right? Like, do you mean kill him? He's like, yes, I'm trying to be subtle. And like, every time he's like, but you remember like every time, last time when you said you really wish something would happen to him, nothing happened because we were all waiting for something to happen to him. You really got to be more explicit about these things. <laughs> so I think this is yet, yet again, another like <laughs> lost in translation maybe extrapolating the implication and meaning, although Bolingbroke does say at the end, though I did wish him dead, but it's, it's unclear. Again, it's, it's wonderfully opaque because we don't witness this scene that we don't actually, we don't actually know if Bolingbroke said this. Isn't this kind of, I don't know if this was written, but, but during this time, but wasn't it that Elizabeth the first she didn't really say kill Mary Queen of Scots yeah. that maybe she wrote it out, but never signed it, but her, her cabinet or whatever just went ahead and did it. And there's always this, did they, or didn't they? Yeah. There's did, a lot did, of questions like that in this period of history. Yeah. Sort of the beginning of this play too, right? Of like, yeah. did Richard or didn't Richard contribute to the uh, death of Gloucester? Yeah, because it's it's clear it was something that he wanted, but did he explicitly say? I, I, again, it's all these plays I find that they're, they're very cyclical in terms of the the issues that were at the beginning don't really get resolved at the end of the play. They just there's another version of them. The Henry the Fourth Part One is a beautiful example of this. You know, we start with a speech where the king's like, "Oh my God, no more civil war, no more civil war." That's his first speech. It's like, I'm so sick of this blood-soaked earth. His final speech of the play is, we're going to end this civil war. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, that was what she said at the beginning, like four hours ago. There is something like a little bit futile about these cycles of violence that, that, we, that we witness in these plays. So anyway, so here's Exton and, and his friend. Didst thou not mark the king what words he spake? Have I no friend will rid me of this living fear? Was it not so? These were his very words. Have I no friend, quoth he. He spake it twice and urged it twice together, did he not? He did. And speaking it, he wistly, wishedly, wishedly. Yeah, wishedly, yes. That's great. <laughs> and speaking it, he wishedly looked on me as who should say, I would thou wert the man that would divorce this terror from my heart, meaning the king at Pomfret. Come, let's go. I am the king's friend and will rid his foe. Yikes! Yeah. <laughs> this is why we need things on paper, guys. <laughs> we need a paper trail. He looked at me. I he looked at me. That he wanted me to kill Richard. I could just tell that. And the wishedly here meaning intently or fixedly, which is interesting. And it's mm -hmm. like maybe Bolingbroke was like looking out a window, but Exton was in his eye line. <laughs> he was like, oh, he looked at me. I totally got vibes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, uh, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, funny little scene. And again, just sort of setting up how the consequences, you know, such as the breath of kings, as Bolingbroke says in act one, the power of a king's look or implication has real consequences. Uh, life and death consequences. Have we seen Exton before? What? No, we um, have never met this guy. Yeah, just appears. <laughs> just some dude. Some <laughs> knight, because he's got that sir, 
So mm -hmm. he's a knight, but that's all we really know about him. I think it's funny that the line says, "What I I would thou wert the man that would divorce this terror from my heart," and then he just thinks that he's talking about yeah. Richard. <laughs> like he doesn't ever actually specifically say a man or the yeah. king or the yeah or Richard. So it's like he could just be talking about like God, this shitty position that I'm in. All of a sudden, no, yeah. this guy's just like, oh, he's not, he's not Richard. <laughs> He's like got a whole like decoder ring. He's like, this is what he meant, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Bolingbroke's no, 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 no. I was just feeling a bit insecure that day, you know. <laughs> like, there's just like a lot of a lot of uh, misinterpret, um, which is a wonderful word that will appear in in a lot of these plays. Of he misinterpreted me, uh, and it's it's dangerous in this world. In this in the, the world of this play to be misinterpreted because um, he usually means someone's going to get beheaded. Yeah, anyway. you almost feel like this is just more about Bolingbroke. Like this is yeah. just more about how, well, it's very like reminiscent of Richard's let us, you know, sit upon the ground speech where he says, you know, kings kill with a look. Yes. Like, you have to be careful. You, you have to be careful what you do as a king because mm -hmm at the end of the day, you hold the responsibility for it, even if it's not what you wanted necessarily. <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, the, the breath of kings, the, the look, killing with a look. I mean, that's literally what's about to happen. And here we come to, uh, just a, a personal note, possibly my favorite speech in the entire canon. I just love this speech. Um, it's a doozy. It's a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also just uh, as, we, as we go through it, it is so perfectly rhetorically organized. Number one thoughts, thoughts uh, of things divine, thoughts tending to ambition, thoughts tending to content. Conclusion. It's like there's a lot of one, two, three conclusions in this speech. If you um, so open your ears, which will be the, the first lines of King Henry IV, part two. Take it away, Zoe. <laughs> I have been studying how I may compare this prison where I live unto the world. And for because the world is populous and here is not a creature but myself, I cannot do it. Yet I'll hammer it out. My brain I'll prove the female to my soul, my soul the father, and these two beget a generation of still breathing thoughts. And these same thoughts people this little world in humors like the people of this world, for no thought is contented. The better sort, as thoughts of things divine, are intermixed with scruples and do set the word itself against the word, as thus come little ones, and then again, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. Thoughts tending to ambition, they do plot unlikely wonders. How these vain, weak nails may tear a passage through the flinty ribs of this hard world, my ragged prison walls. And for they cannot die in their own pride. Thoughts tending to content flatter themselves that they are not the first of fortune slaves nor shall not be the last, like silly beggars who, sitting in the stocks, refuge their shame that many have and others must sit there. And in this thought they find a kind of ease, bearing their own misfortunes on the back of such as have before endured the like. Thus play I and one person many people, 
and uncontented. Sometimes am I king. Then treasons make me wish myself a beggar. <laughs> so I am. Then crushing penury persuades me I was better when a king. Then am I kinged again, and by and by think that I am unkinged by Bolingbroke, and straight am nothing. But whate'er I be, nor I, nor any man that but man is, with nothing shall be pleased till he, till he be eased with being nothing. Music do I hear. Ha, ha, keep time. How sour sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept. So is it in the music of men's lives. And here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string. But for the conquered of my state and time, had not an ear to hear my true time broke. I wasted time, now doth time waste me. For now hath time made me his numbering clock. My thoughts are minutes, and with sighs they jar their watches on unto mine eyes, the outward watch, whereto my finger, like a dial's point, is pointing still and cleansing them from tears. Now, sir, the sound that tells what hour it is are clamorous groans which strike upon my heart which is the bell. So sighs and tears and groans show minutes, times, and hours. But my time runs posting on in Bolingbroke's proud joy while I stand fooling here, his jack of the clock. This music mads me. Let it sound no more, for though it have holp madmen to their wits, in me it seems it will make wise men mad. Yet blessing on his heart that gives it me, for tis a sign of love, and love to Richard is a strange brooch in this all-hating world. Just extraordinary. There's a, some interesting folio differences. This is not all from the folio. So the very famous line, set the word itself against the word, which is what the Duchess said, which is also the best description of what an antithesis is, setting a word against a word. In the folio, it's to set the faith itself against the faith. I think because a word having to do with the word of God, um, setting, setting the two words. I think the other interesting one is when we get to the image of the clock, instead of to check time broke in a disordered string in the folio, it's to hear time broke in a disordered string, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. I would love to know thoughts, and then I would love to just do a little sort of surgical dissection of the clock image, because I find it to be very difficult and confusing. So I'd love to sort of try and sort that out. But first of all, thoughts. How is this Richard different than the Richard with Queen Isabel? I mean, this is his final form. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is the last we're seeing of him. So it's interesting because he is alone um, and you know talking about how he's trying to sort of like fill his little world with people he's trying to people his little world with all of these thoughts which is sort of what we were talking about before like what a kingly thing that is as mm -hmm. the king you are you know your whole realm kind of yeah so i don't know that is sort of an interesting connection in my mind and also like it's a soliloquy really because he is alone on stage. So who is he talking to? God, the audience, you know, who is this for? Is mm -hmm. a big question I have about this speech. Because, yes. you know, it can't just be him puzzling it out yeah. for himself. 
you know, you have to sort of give share something. Yeah, you have to share. But yeah, I mean, as you said, it's like a perfect puzzling out. It's kind of like yeah. a perfect speech that has this natural, but also ends with him sort of losing it a bit. I feel like the yeah. emotion builds as you go through. Yeah. Uh, and you see him, you know, for the first time you see him utterly, utterly alone. I mean, yeah, it's pretty heartbreaking. It's pretty yeah. heartbreaking. It's definitely the most sympathetic, I think, you see him as. I, I totally agree. I think there is something, I think for me, this is the, pro, the most proto-Hamlet moment of the entire play. Because, you know, Hamlet, what's Hamlet famous for? Hamlet's famous for soliloquies. This is not a play with soliloquies. This is a play where people are witnessing each other speak. Off the top of my head, I can think of one, which is after the Welsh captain leaves and Salisbury, like back in act three or act two, I think. Yeah, act two has that tiny little thing about Richard Starr falling. He sees, he sees the glory falling. That's like number one soliloquy. Here we have a second soliloquy. And what a soliloquy it is. I mean, what an incredible development of an idea. I think something that I also wanted to mention was that traditionally for the Elizabethans, the soul was female, not male. Mm -hmm. So there is yet again an interesting, I don't know why this reversal happens, but there's an interesting reversal of the brain being female and the soul being male. So there's an interesting gender reversal there. And I don't know what the significance of it is, but I, I thought it was worth noting that traditionally the soul is female. I love it. Yes, yes. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, well, um, so, uh, I, I just, as, as uh, Zoe was reading it, I was thinking that the early part up to where the music comes in reminded me an awful lot of, say, uh, Burton's Anatomy of um, Melancholy or or uh, the works of um, Sir Thomas Brown, burial, um, what is it, burial urn. So we're, and this is a big thing back then of analyzing something, breaking it down into components, thought is mm. there's good thoughts, there's these kinds of thoughts and so forth. It kind of resembled that, that strategy that was so prevalent. I just throw that Absolutely. In. I think that's a wonderful, it's, it's almost like um, an itemization of, of grief and of, of right. the, psychology, very similar to what uh, Olivia talks about as she's sort of itemizing her face to mm -hmm. Viola, the one mm -hmm. neck, one chin. And so the, it is kind of this amazing list of breaking down these component thoughts. And I love this, this image. I've always loved this image of these, these tiny little thoughts are, are just bubbling around and they're what is keeping his prison full. It's, he's got all of these little companion thoughts that are like wandering around like little minions. I love that he has that repetition of the, the, the unkinged by Bolingbroke again, and the beggar and the king, which we just had with um, the previous scene, finds its way into this scene of um, Richard becoming a, a beggar, then realizing poverty is horrible, and then being kinged again, and then goes through his deposition and being unkinged. And, and similar to what you were talking about, uh, Bill, about the, the sort of Lear connection, crushing penury. I mean, that's all that we get, but this, this acknowledgement of, gosh, it is horrible <laughs> to live in poverty. What a horrible state to be in. When we get the music, I just wanted to, to again, remind that it's very, I think a very interesting interpretation of this music moment is that 
it is the music of the spheres and that perhaps Richard is the only person who hears it because it was thought that you hear the music of the spheres before you die, but only you can hear it because you're about to die. So what does um, it mean that the music that he hears is is out of time? It's yeah, I think I, I like check time broken a disordered string. This this other um, we had this Mowbray in Act One had the whole thing about my my tongue is is like an unstringed. There's a lot about sort of things that were whole and things that create harmony being off, being broken, like the strings have been broken. It is a, it is a good question, Carol. I, I, I don't quite have an, an answer for it, but that the music is maddening him in both the sense that it is angering him and also making him losing his wits, right? He's, he feels that he is losing his grip of reality. And then this, I think, you know, we mentioned that uh, there, there's a lot in this speech, we mentioned in an earlier episode, there's a lot in this speech that a lot of us are dealing with being in quarantine during this time of COVID that, that, that really speaks to us a lot of this being alone in a room with nothing but our thoughts. A lot of thinking about the nature of time. And I think this is one of the sort of trippiest descriptions and analysis of time that time is broke is is broken that we we don't have the steadiness of time to hold on to that something is the time is out of joint <laughs> oh curse and spite that ever i was born to exit right that <laughs> that there is something unhinged about this about this version of time that richard is experiencing He's having sort of breaks with reality, it seems to me. I don't know. What, what do you guys think? <laughs> also a little bit of, you know, I agree with the breaks with reality, but um, a little bit of potential self-awareness. Um, the poverty part sort of made me think about it as, you know, one of the things that being alone is good for is sort of uh, getting to dig into yourself and mm. um, something here. And then again, it is as hard to come as for a camel to thread the postern of a small needle's eye. You know, in the Bible, that part is not talking about how difficult it is for everyone to get into heaven. It is specifically referencing rich men. Yes. Men who aren't willing to let go of their earthly powers and riches. So I think that also potentially references Richard... Mm having some realization of maybe what has brought him here because that ties very much into what he was accused of um, throughout the play of being sort of this out of touch, you know, wealthy guy who didn't really take the common people into account. That's a um, wonderful point, Mary. I like that a lot. And the, I wasted time as if time is something, you know, because we say, oh yeah, I was wasting time. And it's such a sort of, kind of common phrase now, but time wasting me is to me, it's like, it's first of all, the architecture, I wasted time, time wastes me, right? There, there's this perfect kind of pyramid, as it were, of the rep repeated words. And the idea that time is wasting 
you away is such a beautiful poetic kind of devastating image. And to me, that is almost his most self-aware moment in the entire play. It's like summed up in that, this is what I did wrong. And this is the consequence of what I did wrong. Summed up in one line, you know, it's just, oof. Yeah, seeing himself. Yeah. And you really have to like ride that wave in, in performance of it. Um, yes. Cause it goes all over the place. Like it is a perfect build, but he darts off in many directions. Uh, and it's something that I, I mean, I love Mark Rylance and I think it's something he does beautifully, especially with this speech is really like going with the flow of it and mm-hmm. letting each moment, letting each moment be fulfilled in it. He never paints with a broad brush, which is yes. what I love about him. And yeah. he lets, the comedy really live as well. So even when you get to that point, cause I think that is a lot about what that speech is, as you were saying, Myri, about, you know, his wealth and being a king versus, you know, being poor and being a beggar and that whole bit that we've been talking about um, where he's like kinged and unkinged in his mind. Mm-hmm. And Rylance does the, this great bit when he, when he does the, you know, I, w- I was better when a king, like it's better to be rich. <laughs> It's good to be the king. <laughs> and it, yeah. And it is that sort of way, you know, he goes back and forth. Like mm. what is, yeah, what does it mean to be good? And what does it mean to have a good life? And it's like these huge philosophical things that he's battling with in one speech, like yeah. right before he's killed at the end of this play. And so you really do like, you know, in performance, like have to ride that wave and sort of see it through to whatever conclusion it comes out to. And I think it's great, especially with the music bit. Mm. Again, the in the Rylance Globe version, he has like a little dance break there <laughs> where he's like dancing <laughs> to the music. And then the keep time, it's like he's, you know, cause he's doing a dance and then he's like, oh, keep time. Like you're messing up my dance here. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. And it's so brilliant. I love that he like, is so in it and really like living, living it. And then also I think that part's really funny because it makes me think of like, (laughs) it's a very Lady Catherine de Bourgh moment (laughs) of like, if I had ever learned piano, I would have been a great proficient. Like, you know, I have such an ear for music. It's like, you still get little peaks of the old Richard. Like he can't ever shake his, um, sort of status or his like, Absolutely. you know, I know these things because I was king. Yeah. He can't, yeah, he can't shake off, shake that off even when he's like- Shake off those regal thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you can yeah. take the crown away from the king, but he, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. And I, I actually am recalling there is a wonderful, it's one of my favorite um, actually radio play style recordings is the Archangel recording of Richard II and Rupert Graves, who's a wonderful, I think very underrated actor, plays Richard oh, II. Love him. And yeah. I remember just being completely like intoxicated by the way that he did this speech. And you know, yeah, I, I just picture him doing it, but it, it was like the way he read this speech was just like, oh, it was so intense. And, and 
and bitterly ironic and and his anger was so visceral for for Bolingbroke by the end of it you know it's like it's like I he gets to the point of it's like I've tried I've tried and I've tried and this fucking guy took this fucking thing away you know and there was there was such rage which to me kind of fueled this incredible thing because Richard doesn't really do that much in the play in terms of like physical actions and then before he's killed he kills two guys where did that energy come from you know (laughs) it's like he just doesn't seem to me to be the kind of person that would you know he would get as we saw at the beginning he'll get someone else to do the dirty work for him but suddenly I think something changes and this music maths me I think you know it it exasperates I'm I'm done um patient he's about to say patience is stale I'm weary of it. I just want it to fucking end, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but then right before that, we get this wonderful moment. And I, I, I would love for us to go into the, the groom part, this moment with a, a former household servant of his who just wants to give him some good vibes. And <laughs> it's a really sweet little encounter with a coin joke at the beginning, just so I don't have to interrupt. I have just recently realized how many freaking coin jokes Shakespeare makes. They're like all over the place. And this one, it says Royal Prince, which was uh, meant kingly, right? But also was an English coin that was worth about half a pound of royal. And then Richard says, thanks, noble peer, which was a four penny piece, um, which would be 10 groats, you know, cheapest of us since 10 groats too dear. So there's all these like weird coin jokes that the audience is never going to get, but just they're there. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so let's see this, this wonderful little interaction between the groom of the Royal stables and Richard. Hail Royal Prince. Thanks noble peer. The cheapest of us is 10 groats too dear. What art thou and how comes thou hither? Where no man never comes, but that sad dog that brings me food to make misfortune live. I was a poor groom of thy stable, king, and when thou wert king, who, travelling toward York, with much ado at length have given here to look upon my sometime royal captain's face. How it yearned my heart when I beheld in London streets that coronation day, when Bolingbroke rode on road Barbary. That horse that thou so often hast bestrid, that horse that I so carefully have dressed. Rode he on Barbary? Tell me, gentle friend, how went he under him? So proudly as if he had stained the ground. So proud that Bolingbroke was on his back. That jade hath eat bread from my royal hand. This hand hath made him proud with clapping him. Would he not stumble? Would he not fall down? Since pride must have a fall and break the neck of that proud man that did usurp his back. Forgiveness, horse. Why do I rail on thee? Since thou, created to be awed by man, was born to bear was not made a horse, and yet I bear a burden like an ass, spurred, galled, and tired by jaunting Bolingbroke. Hello, give place. Here is no longer stay. If thou love me, tis time thou wert away. What my tongue dares not, that my heart shall say. My lord, will it please you to fall too? Taste of it first, as thou art wont to do. My lord, I dare not. Sir Pierce of Exton, who lately come from the king, commands the contrary. The devil take Henry of Lancaster and thee. Patience is stale, and I am weary of it. And then I'm just suddenly yelling for help. 
before Wonderful. the murder So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I think that Richard probably attacks the keeper here and is like, oh, you, um, mm, mm. Um, I think that's the sort of implied stage direction here. Got it. He's just like, like this... I am so over this shit. Like, I'm taking you down. So is what do we think of this? They, is it because he's, he basically is admitting that they're like trying to poison him? Is I think so. Happening? I okay. think so. I think you're absolutely right. I think okay. he's basically like, don't you always taste it first? Isn't that like what you do? And the keeper's like, oh, I was told not to. <laughs> he's like, Are you serious? <laughs> it's pretty, it's again, like the moments of comedy, I think you've got to play them up. It's like, find the inconsistencies and like play them to mm -hmm. the hilt. Um, I love this bit with the groom. I just, I don't know why. I just love that. They're talking about a horse and like Richard gets all like, he's like, why wouldn't the horse use serpent? And then that wonderful that change bit. of forgiveness horse. <laughs> and the odd, I always thought that odd meant like, because I, every time I see a horse, I'm like, holy crap, what a gigantic awe-inspiring creature. <laughs> but in this, it, um, in this sense, odd means you were created to be controlled or restrained by men. So it's kind of the opposite mm. of what mm. I thought it was. Mm. There we go. And what a, what a sweet, I've, I've seen a lot of productions where the groom enters like with a little lute or a guitar or something. And you're like, oh, the groom is the one playing music. Oh, sweet. <laughs> it's an interesting, sweet little moment, sweet little personal moment before the assassins enter. Um, yeah. Shall well, what we, is uh, the... Oh, just a question. What it, the, the groom's last line there, the what my tongue dares not that my heart shall say. I what think he knows that? that something bad's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, that's my interpretation anyway. There, there could yeah. be a different, a different meaning there. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a little bit more simple and less foreshadowy, but I was kind of taking it like the groom is still clearly fond of Richard. Mm. Mm. And so, like, mm. he's just kind of, you know, I love you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. I like that. That's very yeah. nice. That's I'm like, why nice. is he even allowed to come in here? <laughs> yeah. Also, but, yeah. Yeah, well, and he says, for much ado at length, like, I, I, it took me a really long time. But obviously, he did, he got to jump through a lot of hoops to get to see Richard. So, yeah. it obviously meant a lot to him. Um, which is kind of a very touching thing to have this, again, this like loyalty um, right before the assassins enter. Um, all right. Help, help, help. <laughs> How now? What means death in this rude assault? Villain, thy own hand yields thy death's instrument. Go thou and fill another room in hell. That hand shall burn in never-quenching fire that staggers thus my person. Exton, thy fierce hand, hath with the king's blood stained the king's own land. Mount, mount, my soul, thy seat is up on high, whilst my gross flesh sinks downward here to die. As full of valor as of royal blood, both have I spilled. Or would the deed were good, for now the devil that told me I did well say that this deed is chronicled in hell. This dead king to the living king I'll bear. Take hence the rest and give them burial here. 
wow, that happened fast. I always, I always kind of love it. Like my, the little like stage combat nerd in me is like, yeah, when there's like a really epic fight before Richard is killed, when he's like turns into a ninja and suddenly it's like, he's, it's like him in the middle of four people and he's like, I'm killing all of you. And you're like, who is this guy? We didn't see this guy for the rest of the show. Where did he come from? (laughs) It is, it is like the, the scene with the queen where she's like, you're a lion now fucking go. Yeah. You sort of see that right at the end. You're like, he oh, learned Krav Maga while he was in prison. <laughs> like, like, I don't, I don't even know. Time on his crazy. Yeah. Working out, getting jacked. <laughs> he's, he's had some really good yard time. It's so, it's crazy because you have that big, long contemplative speech and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and he, now he's dead. Okay. Yeah. And now we're in the final scene. Which, just before we get into the final scene, I, I loved that in the Hollow Crown, as they were talking about all of these, the heads of the traitors that they've sent, they just dump them at Bolingbroke's feet. Like, just this bag of heads. And Bolingbroke is like, oh, Jesus, I hate this job. This job sucks. What have I gotten into? So anyway, <laughs> here we have our final scene. Re- I'm sorry, re- refresh my memory. Say that the town name for me again. Sister, Sister. Oh God, let's just skip it. <laughs> Our town of in Gloucestershire. <laughs> I don't know. Does anyone have any? I mean, our town of sis of Sister in Gloucestershire. That works with the rhythm, but I could be completely wrong. Sister, Sister. Sister. Oh, Sister. Yeah. That's Sister. better. Let's do that. <laughs> Dealer's choice. <laughs> kind of York, the latest news we hear is that the rebels have consumed with fire our our town of Sister in Gloucester. Whether they be tain or slain, we hear not. Welcome, my lord. What is the news? First, to thy sacred state wish I all happiness. The next news is I have to London sent the heads of Salisbury, Spencer, Blunt, and Kent. The manner of their taking may appear at large discoursed in this paper here. We thank thee, gentle Percy, for thy pains, and to thy worth, and to thy worth will add right worthy gains. My lord, I have from Oxford sent to London the heads of Brockus and Sir Bennet Seeley, two of the dangerous consorted traitors that sought at Oxford thy thy overthrow. Thy pains, Fitzwater, shall not be forgot. Right noble is thy merit, well I wot. The grand conspirator, abbot of Westminster, with clog of conscience and sour melancholy, hath yielded up his body to the grave. But here is Carlyle living, to abide thy kingly doom and sentence of his pride. Carlyle, this is your doom. Choose out some secret place, some reverend room, more than thou hast, and more than thou hast, and with it joy thy life. So as thou livest in peace, die free from strife. For though mine enemy thou hast ever been, high sparks of honor in thee I have seen. Great king, within this coffin I present thy buried fear. Here in all breathless lies the mightiest of thy greatest enemies, Richard of Bordeaux, by me hither brought. Hexton, I thank thee not, for thou hast wrought a deed of slander with thy fatal hand upon my head and all this famous land. From your own mouth, my lord, did I this deed. 
They love not poison that do poison need, nor do I thee. Though I did wish him dead, I hate the murderer. Love him murdered. Guilt of conscience take thou for thy labor, but neither my good word nor princely favor. With Cain go wander through shades of night, and never show thy head by day nor light. Lords, I protest my soul is full of woe. The blood should sprinkle me to make me grow. Come mourn with me what I do lament, and put on sullen black incontinent. I'll make a voyage to the Holy Land, wash this blood off my guilty hand. March sadly after, grace my mornings here, weeping after this untimely beer. And that's when we all go get a beer. <laughs> <laughs> I always love that the last word of this play is beer. <laughs> like, yeah. Wow, super cool. Wow, so what's going on with Bolingbroke there in the end? That's quite a different speech than the kind of language that we've experienced with him. Well, he's, he's getting ready for the first lines of Henry 4-1. <laughs> he's, he's learning his lines <laughs> for the next play. I love that. No, you could launch straight into it, though. <laughs> I was going to say, like, man, can you imagine just going straight from, like, in weeping after this untimely beer? So shaken. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> one play. One long, long miniseries. I mean, wow. Poor Exton, also. Exton's like, here's your buried fear. I got it for you, Dad. Yeah. And he's like, you're fucking banished. You know? yeah. <laughs> In fairness, I feel like that's on Exton for, you know, what who assumptions make. He was uh, interpolating or extrapolating a little bit too much. Was, well, and, and we're, in, we're in a new realm. I mean, my God, since Bolingbroke um, has... Uh, taken power. Uh, let's see, Bushy, Green, and Wiltshire were beheaded. And now we have Brocas, Sir Bennett, Seeley, Salisbury, Spencer, Blunt, Kent, and the Abbot of what? So that's nine people have been beheaded. And these are all nine members of the nobility who knows what happened to the soldiers that were not of rank that were following them. And then also the abbot of Westminster that we had just met has already died, but seemingly of natural causes. Um, <laughs> so we've had 11, well, plus the two servants that were killed. We've, we've, we've actually had 12 deaths since Bolingbroke was, has come into power, which is quite a lot. That's a lot. And then we had, of course, John of Gaunt and the Duchess of Gloucester dying of natural causes at the beginning. So we've got a lot of death and destruction going on here. Yeah, you can really see why he pardons Carlisle at this point. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No more heads, please. We're losing, we're losing Murder people here. Top of all this. <laughs> we've decimated the government. We, we got to keep a couple people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, interesting though, right? All of the other people were, were lords and they were part of the secular power and you're pardoning the ecclesiastical power any final thoughts on five? I mean, I, I, I guess this is the question throughout with Bolingbroke, right? But like, what is he, what did he actually want? How honest is he being about not wanting Richard dead or wanting Richard dead or ordering him dead or not? I mean, there's so many, like you were saying, it's so opaque. I think it's yeah. a really great place to end the play because you're still like, who is this guy? Yeah. Is he like a brilliant 
manipulator or is he like a man of the people? Like, who is he? Mm -hmm. uh, I sort of see, it, I sort of see him as like a patriot. Like from from the get go, I think he what he thinks he's doing is is right for England. Mm -hmm. Even so, that's he's conflicted there because it's like, well, if you take up, then you're doing something that's sinful by protecting your country, sort of. But then he, when he becomes king, it's like the first thing he does is he he's like, I gotta get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, like he doesn't. I don't think he enjoys the job at all. I think he's sort of a a, a little bit on the reluctant side. Mm. But he, uh, but I think he he feels that it it's what the country needs, and that Richard was taking it mm. down a wrong path. I don't know. Maybe I'm. I I think that's absolutely right, Mike. I think there's there's something to me so telling on when he's on his deathbed and he's speaking to his son, and he says, "You know what? My problem was was I didn't I didn't come up with a foreign conflict. That's what you really got to oh. do to bring the land together." So what you need to do is go go wage war on somebody else. And it's chilling because it's like, that's exactly what contemporary governments do. When they want to unite, they, they just invade somewhere yeah. because you need someone to be the other. When there's no one left to be the other, that's when you start dividing up the kingdom. That's when the countrymen become the other. And that's what civil war happens. So you got to go invade someone else and turn them into the villain. And it's, it's a chilling piece of advice because, of course, that's exactly what we see. It's one of the first things that Henry V does. What does he do? He goes and invades France. And he had fewer uprisings than, I think, any king of this time in terms of uh, civil uprisings. There were two, like, very, very minor little uprisings against him, and they were squashed within a day. So everyone's like, we're sick of civil war. Enough of this. Let's go kill the French. So there's, <laughs> there is an interesting, I think that the moral of the story for, for, for Henry is like, you got to focus the realm on an outside enemy. Otherwise it turns on itself. And I love that image of the blood sprinkling you to make you grow with the, you oh, know, yeah, we had that Carlisle's English blood that. manuring the ground. And, and yeah. here we have it. This is exactly what's happened. You know, it's kind of extraordinary. Thank you all so much. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful.